As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge your glass. This nation is going to dance all night. The cultural importance of the 1990s football blooper video. The mundane side to the modern art of time wasting. The evolution of our expectations of footballers' intellects. A deep dive into late fitness tests. Whether we should really care about manufactured matchday atmospheres. How football speak is suddenly gate crashing the legal world and the squeezing dry of the football merchandise sponge. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 231 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and alongside me for this one is Charlie Eccleshare. How's it going? Very well, how are you? I'm really good. I'm very excited actually because uh, with us for Mesut Harland Dicks today is one of the forefathers of footballing sideways looks, the late 90s blooper video trilogy ace, Nick Hancock. How's it going? It's going great, thank you. I've always wanted to be a forefather, and now I am. Never entirely sure what the responsibilities of being a forefather are. I mean, I, I guess it's all done for you, isn't it? I think if you're a forefather, you can do whatever you like, because your real time was a long, long time ago. Well, I'm glad you said it and I didn't have to. Charlie, I feel confident about this. I feel confident that Nick is well up there as a candidate to be Mr. Stoke City. How do you feel? Mm. He's got a strong case, hasn't he? I think so, yeah. I think if you cut Nick open, he'd bleed Stoke. (laughs) Definitely gives that impression. Yeah. I mean, I was confident about this, Nick, that you were Mr. Stoke City. But then, for my sins, I googled celebrity Stoke City fans and what spilled out is an astonishing array of names. Let me run you through them. Sugar Ray Leonard, Slash from Guns N' Roses, the lead singer of AHA, Julian Clary and former British number one tennis player Jeremy Bates. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and two of those are true. 
<laughs> That's I a good hit rate, to be fair, for the for, for the internet. So where do you sit in that pantheon then? I wouldn't dream to sit in a pantheon such as that. I would I would serve grapes uh, to those uh, pantheon members. <laughs> I've got a fairly I'm fairly sure Sugar Ray Leonard was one of those. Somebody met Sugar Ray Leonard and said, "Will you say you're a Stoke fan?" Which this happens a lot, does it not? Slash from Guns and Roses was born in Stoke on Trent, so I think they've just presumed that Jeremy Bates is right. Julian Clary again. I'm, that may have been me actually that did that one. <laughs> um, and and and. And, and Morton Harkett from Aha. Yes, because, of course, you've got the traditional early 70s star soccer being shown in Scandinavia and lots of Scandinavians supporting English, British teams and, and Stoke actually being quite good then. So, you know, there you go. Now, it's amazing what people latch on to after just sort of watching snippets of English football. But it's good to know you're not alone at the top table at the Bet365. Nick, it would be remiss of me not to discuss the magical footballing media subgenre of 1990s football videos. So specifically, Football Nightmares and Football Hell, which are masterpieces in their own right. I'd like to ignore Football Doctor, which I feel like is like Godfather Part 3. I think it's Godfather Part 5, as in it should have been unreleased, to tell you the honest truth. It's an interesting conceit, the Football Doctor, but um, yeah, but maybe took it too far. I think the truth of the matter is it wasn't taken too far. It wasn't taken far enough. I think it was like literally the first thing that came into somebody's head. You know, oh, what could it be about oh, fixing football? Who fixes things? A doctor. It was a really, really short journey, I think, creatively. Proud to say I owned all three of those. Yes. Released in the end in all-on-one DVD as well, which is what a collector's item that is, Charlie. Yeah, no, I've never had them on DVD, strictly VHS. It's very much the Reader's Digest uh, compilation uh, <laughs> version. <laughs> Looking back at that era of football videos, I mean, I don't want to go too sort of GCSE English literature on you, but I kind of think that you, both your series of videos and Danny Baker's own goals and gaffes, of course, they kind of reframed football as a kind of fundamentally chaotic, mundane, rubbish kind of pursuit just at the same time that Sky Sports were kind of bigging it up or bigging up the Premier League at least as a as a product that's that's probably quite an in- important thing to do at that time kind of just sort of bring everyone back down to earth well I mean I think there's always been a massive disconnect between people who support football and people who cover football uh, especially at the sort of the, the supposedly more serious end basically most football journalists um you know, believe that football is 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 something um, um, quasi-religious. That it's something to be protected and 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 encouraged and and um, revered. Whereas for most of us who know football to be a pantomime of pain and disappointment, um, if you can't just laugh at it, really you're going to have a miserable miserable existence following it. And so, actually, you know, I don't think it was in in any way. Uh, uh, groundbreaking. It was just that is the way most people think about football. You know, it is almost always ludicrous, generally extremely disappointing, and sometimes hilarious. Uh, and you know, and the moments of 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 beauty and the beautiful game are few and far between. And for for many of us, you know, have never been seen. <laughs> Charlie, I feel increasingly confident that Nick's in the right place at the right time here. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. Last point on this, Nick. Did you ever meet Peter Devine? Did you, did your paths ever cross the Lancaster City penalty? Uh, no, clown? no, <laughs> and I, and you know, and I can't, I can't deny to having some regrets. You know, I, I would have been about 
I would have been in my early 20s, you know, of course, when you just think that anybody older than you is completely indestructible and therefore fair game for having the piss taken out of them. Um, you know, you also live in a world, certainly uh, at that age, going to football where, you know, taking the uh, taking the right out of each other is the only method of communication. And so, it, 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 you know, you expect people to understand that. I have subsequently learned that sometimes uh, people don't think that way about themselves, that they are basically humorous, uh, pointless uh, and 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 uh, ridiculous. Uh, and you have to be a little careful. I, I've learned that, but I just certainly didn't know it then. I really want to get this off my chest. I, mean, I think I've been waiting, I don't know, 20 years or so to get this off my chest with you. It's just one of those kind of weird memories that pop into your head and you think happened but it turns out nobody else has any record of. And my inexplicable memory is that there was a rumour that you'd moved to Tibet to become a monk. <laughs> I, I, but it's, it's not a rumour that, 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 that I've heard. Um, certainly. I don't know why it's in my head. I've got no explanation for it, but I'm convinced I read it somewhere. I don't know where. Well, I, I've got to say that, um, you know, I have slight Raynards, which is the uh, feeling of extreme cold in your fingers. No, it uh, never crossed my mind. Interesting. Charlie, uh, Nick Hancock couldn't do it on a <laughs> high-altitude night in Tibet. Now we know. Now we know. We've talked a little bit about Nick's 1990s oeuvre when it comes to comes to football, but um, there are some lesser-known football works of yours, Nick, that I became suddenly very fascinated by, including 1998 documentary The Outsiders, in which you followed the Iranian national team to the World Cup in France. Now, I watched the whole thing. It's absolutely sensational like, and, and very much of its time. Like, you couldn't do that now, pretty much with any national team, because you wouldn't be able to get anywhere close to them. But there's, um, there's a kind of hint of Graham Taylor impossible job about it. But this, this bit is my favourite bit. This is when Iran are taking on Croatia in a pre-tournament sharpener. And uh, you're on the touchline. You're, you're, you're there with your bib on by the bench. And you officially pledge your footballing allegiance to their cause, but you do it in the most English football fan way imaginable. While his team kicked off their final warm-up game against Croatia, our best contact in the Iranian camp was watching from the stands. In his place on the bench, an Iranian, Jalal Talibi, in charge of his first international. Well, well done, Hamid Steely. Azizi. Go on, son. Come on, son. I can't believe I said that. Nick, that really warmed my heart, the fact that you referred to such a far-flung footballing nation in, in those terms. Yeah, well, do you know what? It, it, was, it was a really, really fascinating thing to do. And, you know, the access was ridiculous um, because they didn't really know what access they couldn't give us. I, I loved it. It was it was absolutely absolutely fascinating and of course they went on to beat the US in in France which which was was brilliant and and you couldn't help just getting involved and and uh, and it may well have been my favorite footballing experience outside of, of watching Stoke yeah definitely I like the idea the idea Adam that you said and I actually watched all of it <laughs> <laughs> I hope you often have guests on where you go I struggled through yeah. 10 minutes, you know. Uh, but I had no intention of watching all of it, but did struggle yeah. through. Not only that, Nick, I watched all of it and I nearly watched the entire episode of you taking a rail journey across Cuba in 1999, but I drew the line at that. Yeah, football football very little that. football in that. Very yeah, little football in that. Charlie, we are, we are blessed in some ways for this episode because this is the first guest on Mesut Harland Dicks, or indeed on Football Clichés in its entirety, 
who exist on the Mount Rushmore of late 1990s UK celebrity culture, which is that Daily Mirror front page about Manchester United not participating in the FA Cup in 1999-2000. Let me just just recap some of the... I always thought it would be Darren Day. I always thought it would be Day. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I could stomach Darren Day, but Ian Botham, Tony Blair, Caprice... Trevor Brooking would be in with a good shout, Charlie. Mm, yeah, some, yeah, some heavy. It's such an amazing snapshot of that time. Vinnie Jones, I think, as well. Yeah, Vinnie Jones could have been a goer. That could have been true. But no, indeed, it is Nick Hancock. And, and the quote, Nick, that was attributed to you to sum up your feelings about Manchester United not participating in the grand old FA Cup in 1999, this leaves a nasty taste in the mouth. <laughs> Come on. I would have thought... <laughs> I thought we'd be a lot more wry about it than that. Well, I think you know, they may well have just lifted the quote from almost anywhere. I'm forever saying that things leave a nasty taste <laughs> in the mouth. You must have said something about it yesterday on social media or something, and somebody sent it to me, and I thought, I don't remember that <laughs> at all. What the hell is that about? And, uh, yes, it is It is a very strange uh, snapshot of what must have been a very, very poor time in the world of celebrity culture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not suggesting it was a fellow period for UK celebrity culture at all but if it was me I'd have it framed in my front room um, uh, maybe maybe you've got other stuff I don't know before we get stuck into Mesut Holland Dick so I want to run us through a, a little brief adjudication panel because there are some topical matters that I want to discuss Charlie Jamaica have revealed their new kit and uh, I suspect Nick's not going to like this I don't know why but it was designed by British born Jamaican designer Wales Bonner and it was uh, showcased in fact at the Paris Fashion Show in January. I'm not going to beat around the bush. The kit has pockets. The, sh- the shorts have pockets. Ooh. How do we feel? Are they just sort of not as if they're normal shorts? They're not sort just of like the standard side, hip yeah. pockets to put stuff in, like your hands. Can I suggest that possibly Wales Bonner is is strong on the fashion side of things, but maybe slightly weaker on the football side of things, and has heard at some stage the phrase, he's got him in his pocket, and has decided that actually uh, football shorts need pockets. I like a pocket in a football short. I'm all for it. I think it's a, I think it's a great time. I don't, I don't know what would go in there, but who knows? There's all sorts of things you could take onto the pitch. Some sort of um, screw um, spanner, for instance, could be kept in the pocket. Um, a cap for a keeper. There's any number of things that can be taken onto a pitch that these pockets, um, uh, are they voluminous or, or, or are they more of the shallow style? They look a bit shallow, I have to say. I mean, they, I mean, the model in question barely looks like they can fit a hand in. So, Charlie, this strikes me as a massively unnecessary kit development for modern times. Yeah, shin pad tape. I'm just thinking the, the sort of those small little things that would be quite... Because it, it has always felt a bit annoying that you never get pockets in, in football yeah. shorts. Maybe little tactical instructions from the manager. Who knows? Next up, very curious story, Nick. This was tweeted by uh, Derek Ray, the revered Bundesliga commentator, who said that Bayern Munich's Deot Upamakano has been working with an opera singer on his vocal technique, which had been causing him problems when trying to shout loudly on the pitch. Upamakano would often have a sore throat and would be hoarse, not any longer, after his voice coaching. Incredible marginal gain situation going on here. You hear all the time about footballers sort of taking on extra help, like they might have a private chef to, to sort of refine their nutrition or something like that but a voice coach this is exceptional stuff yeah, that is interesting you don't know if he was in wales yesterday do you because i did read a story um about a mountain rescue team being called out and they finally found the person who was screaming what they thought was for help uh, and when they found him he said oh no i'm, I'm just practicing my shouting 
which wow. I thought was a great thing to do, to go <laughs> on your own up a man, think, you know what? Now's the t- If I'm going to practice my shouting ever, now is the time to do it. Not enough snow for the avalanche, nobody around to be upset. Who'd have thought Imagine mm. Rescue Team are going to turn up? It may well have been him. In terms of Upper Meccano's career aspirations, this feels like too desperate an attempt to get into an athletic long read to me. <laughs> that little detail. Yeah, or an attempt to, like with many of these things, is it just an attempt to piss off the proper football men? Because they're not going to like that, you feel. Yeah, Keezy won't like that, Not that's for sure. Finally, for the adjudication panel today, this came from Berkshire Blade, who was watching uh, Sheffield United edging past Wrexham in their FA Cup replay on Tuesday night. Here's uh, NL Ahmed Hodzic opening the scoring for Sheffield United and eliciting a never-before-heard net noise. What kind of sound is that, Charlie? It's, 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 it's too plasticky, it's too, it's too kind of child toy-like. It sounds like they've got something hanging up on the goal that's just been knocked over. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, I don't like it at all. It unnerves me. It's not the sort of sound I want to hear when a goal is being scored. It worries me. It reminds me of one of those um, those shallow electronic drums that appeared in the early <laughs> 80s. Yeah. Uh, I don't like it, Sheffield United. Go and fix your goal nets. Right. It's time for Meza Harland Dicks with Nick Hancock. When I asked you to do this, Nick, I suspected you would be full to the brim of things you didn't like about football. But I was I was more interested to know what you were fascinated by. So let's kick off with those. Let's t- tell me about your first fascination of football, please. In terms of time, it's not my first fascination. It's my current first fascination. And I have to say that I found this very difficult because I find that the things that fascinate me and irritate me are often the same thing. And, you know, within a moment can change from one to the other. I think what I've chosen is what I've decided to describe as the creeping emergence of time out. Uh, time out is a thing that uh, apparently uh, exists in some American sports where people can go in and just stop the game for no good reason to have some sort of secret conversation or to pat someone on the back, etc., etc., etc. Now, I would suggest that many have dreamt of becoming a professional footballer, uh, you know, and they will often talk about uh, how wonderful it is to be doing the job that you love. And so I wonder, and this may be more prevalent in the championship than the premiership, why they seem so keen to stop playing at every fucking possibility they can get. I cannot tell you how stop, start, stop, not really start, stop again and stop then again games are in the championship. It drives me mad. But the reason I quite like it is because they're so bad at it. The tricks that they pull are so awful. And it reminds you, I imagine many of your listeners will have, as indeed I did, gone to school. Now, if you remember when you were at school and I was a teacher as well, you know, there was an unwritten law, which was that you go into class and it is the job of the pupils to do as little learning as possible. It seems to be much the same in professional football these days, that their job is to play as little football as possible and so you know and I used to quite enjoy that game because everybody knew what was going on in school you know as a teacher you know when you say right we're going to start reading at the no so we, we haven't reached that bit yet sir so that that bit isn't in the book or you know Kidwell's only got one shoe on 
or the window's broken, sir, and I'm worried it's going to fall and blind me and all of that sort of thing. And you get exactly the same in football. Any possible excuse to stop playing seems to be the end, the end route for all players to move towards. It's like for them, if, you, if they were like us, if you have a job in an office and you hate it, Okay, you go to the bog to read the paper. Football <laughs> games are full of players going to the bog to read the paper. You are delighted if there's a fire alarm. Football games are full of fire alarms. Everybody, <laughs> thought, thank God, hey, we'll all have a little bit of a wander around. We'll take our times getting started again. We'll talk about the fire alarm. We know it isn't a real fire, but that doesn't matter. We still, everyone still has to leave the building. You know, great. We're not doing the thing we're being paid for. A very interesting point in there, Charlie, was was Nick's theory that footballers aren't very good at this sort of thing. And and I, to an extent, I kind of sympathise with this because time wasting in its most modern cynical form is quite a new art. So, and it, it clearly takes a certain type of football, a certain type of personality to try and get away with it. And, and a very good scenario I'm thinking of is when a goalkeeper shifts a goal kick from one side of the six yard box to the other. That takes serious balls. And especially if you're doing it in front of like an away end or something, that takes serious nuts, doesn't it? Yeah, there must be a lot of, I think there are a lot of players who do look quite uncomfortable. They're being asked to do these dark arts that don't come naturally to them. And it's sort of de rigueur and you know you have to do it, but you're kind of like, oh, I wish I didn't because I am going to get an absolute pasting for doing this. I mean, I love, Nick, your your um, time wasting at school is so pertinent because I remember at primary school, a friend of mine literally described it, you know, he would come up with strategies to waste time and he'd use that terminology. And I was like, that feels a little cynical. You know, if it's sort of like, if you're just doing it off the cuff, but he would go into lessons and be like, yeah, that should eat up half an hour. It's like... What a way to have our education. There was a boy at our primary school who, who could wet himself uh, just by thinking about <laughs> it. You know, and if players could do that, they would do it. I, well, I'm, that's I'm the sure equivalent. When players look for blood, which they've never, ever find, there's because there's never, ever been blood when they've done that sort of like, oh, I'm going to feel my nose. Is there blood? No, of course there's not blood. If someone could make blood appear on demand, that would sort of be the equivalent. Like the Chilean goalkeeper. Uh, Roberto Rocas in the uh, qualification for the 1990 World Cup for which... Uh, the which fire ban. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know your history. That's right. Yeah. But there's a cynical side to this, Nick. You know, players essentially trying to stop stall the momentum of the game. But also, it's quite a boring thing for a footballer to have to go through. It's, it's quite a mundane task. So we asked our listeners, what are the most boring on-field parts of being a footballer? Here's the first one. Adam Gray says, having to go and close down the goalkeeper at barely more than walking pace in order for him to pick up the ball. Again, I mean, that just seems, that seems like such a tedious job. I mean, so unique in football, just so futile. There aren't many situations in football like that. And footballers having to go through the motions of doing it is quite funny. That is a great one. I like, because that seems, because you know you have to, there's no shortcut. You just have to do it. You're completely dancing to their tune and it must be absolutely soul destroying. You're absolutely right in, in that idea that some players don't like it. I like it. I like it when players do the foe looking to the linesman to check where the free kick's got to be taken from, which is just so clearly. And yet, no, I'm doing a good thing. So I'm over trying obedience. to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, becoming massively obedient to the officials yeah, is, a, is yeah. a real red flag for, for yeah, a yeah, player yeah. trying to stall the game. The second one here is from Sam Brown, Nick. And I suspect you're not going to agree with this one at all. He says the most boring thing a footballer does on the pitch is towel drying the ball before a long throw in. Now, I imagine, I imagine as a Stoke man that you're, uh, you're fully on board with this. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one way of looking at it. You've got to be fair on Rory. Presumably that's what you're referring to. You find August, September, May, very rarely used the towel. It, this was clearly a seasonal thing. And I don't mean in a football season way. I'm talking about weather. It's a weather bound. OK, OK, interesting. Right, Nick, your second fascination of football, please. Okay, this is the new or relatively new phenomenon of thinking footballers, which I absolutely applaud and I love. And I and I really I admire your Marcus Rashford, your Hal Robson Carnus, your, your, your Raheem Sterlings, the things that they say. Fantastic. They know that they're in an incredibly powerful uh, position. They can highlight terrible things in the world. That is a really good thing. I like it. It's a move forward. Although I would say, on the other hand, I do miss... I missed the time when, and it was probably incredibly unfair, Warren was expected to think of all footballers as being thick as pig shit. Now, that was a lazy trope, but a fun one, I have to say, at the time. So it meant any footballer that had anything more than 5-0 levels clearly had the nickname Bamba. Uh, from Bamba <laughs> Gascoigne, who who presented um, University Challenge, uh, and you used to get these fantastic stories, these you know these great things that were such good fun. I remember the one of my very favourite was is the do you know the Darius Vassell injured toe story? He drilled into it. Is that right? He drilled. He used a drill to release the blood from his toe, and strangely had to miss more games. There was also famously a player who who uh, threatened a journalist for calling him ubiquitous, which I like as well. <laughs> very, very pleasing. And of course, you do, you, you know, you do. Have, I, what I, I like, the fact that Ian Dowie actually has a degree mm. in aeronautical uh, engineering, which, uh, you know, which is rocket science, which is so pleasing. <laughs> uh, and so I think the joy of having, of having the educated footballer is, is to, be, to be celebrated. This is really interesting. It got me thinking, Charlie, of trying to come up with a kind of chronology, charting the evolution of our expectations of the intellects of footballers. And I I think I've managed to divide it into three kind of phases. Phase one, which was a very long era, Charlie, of just being happy for footballers to say nothing outside of those much-missed quick-fire interviews they would do for football magazines. Now, if we can put our collective heads together to remember exactly the the questions that came up in here, pre-match meal was absolutely standard, like the most common one, and that would be chicken, beans, pasta. and pasta. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely standard. Weird one that always used to come up, Nick, was who is your best friend in football? Which always used to elicit some very strange answers, and it used to be some sort of random bloke who played for another team. So that was one. Hardest opponent, that was another one. This always used to come up with some very problematic answers, Nick, which was, what would you do if you were invisible for the day? <laughs> that's a really lateral question, isn't it? After who's your best friend in football. That, you know, that's... that's Soften them up with on. some easy ones and then chuck yeah, that. Yeah, I haven't done any revision of that. <laughs> there used to always be the question, um, uh, who would you most like to meet? Uh, and that would always be the Queen at Wembley with the FA Cup. There that was always was really quaint answers that they were always quite, quite touching, weren't they, Charlie? They were never like, you know, supermodels or stuff. It used to be like, yeah, just some some person who's really at the top of their field, basically. Yeah. Royalty. Yeah, I feel like Nelson Mandela would be name <laughs> would be name checked quite often. Yes. Yeah, that was always a good one. So that was phase one, a very long era of not really caring about what footballers had to say about stuff. Then, then Nick, there was this kind of interregnum period where there was a kind of brief period of dispute between people who actively mocked footballers for being supposedly quite thick and then those who insisted that they were, in their own way, quite intelligent. So, you know, to put a finer point on this, this was a kind of the Wayne Rooney, David Beckham, golden generation era where, where we, we felt 
we could use their kind of supposed lack of articulate delivery as a tool to beat them with. It's a different sort of intelligence. Is this that period yes. that, you know, yes, but he's got more spatial awareness than you'll ever have. Or do you know what I mean? He can instinctively work out the velocity of a ball and the trajectory mm. of a ball, which you wouldn't be able to do. Yes, there was that phase, <laughs> certainly. Or the I remember at that period, there was the very much the, you know, why does it matter? I remember exactly in this period you're talking about, Adam, someone saying to me, well, Einstein couldn't play football. <laughs> In a kind of, you know, it doesn't, why are we fixating on this sort of thing? What position which, which would he resonated? have played? Cere- I don't know, cerebral defender? <laughs> he could have played any number of positions at the same time mm. because, of, of course, in the space-time continuum, um, you can actually be in more than one play. He'd have been a bloody good player, actually, if he could have only put his theory, as they say, into practice. Yes. So now we've reached the, the third phase of this Charlie's, which is where we almost expect players to have a view on wider issues, almost putting them on the spot. But it's a positive development, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to get into the kind of role model debate at all, but it's it's a relatively good thing that people of some standing are given this platform to talk about wider issues, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, I'd, I think of this as the sort of players' tribunification era, yeah. the very sort of earnest, life was hard. Life was very hard. It was fucking hard, actually. Sort of intro, and then sort of talking about how, you know, get you know, you think you look at me and you think I've got it all, but actually I'm just like you, and I had to struggle, you know, and and that. So we got to know these people, and then we'd hear their story and their struggles, and it sort of humanised these people a bit. But it's yeah, it's definitely been a positive development. Yeah, no, it, there is there is still a kind of pang of novelty, you know, heartwarming novelty, Nick, when you find out. A top level footballer still, you know, aced all their GCSEs or has like a couple of couple of A levels to go with it. You think, good, something to fall back on. Is the something to fall back on concept still relevant in 2023? I mean, they, that's always tr- trotted out that Frank Lampard has Latin O level. Mm. I mean, he couldn't fall back on that. He'd have to fall back in time an awful long way for that to be <laughs> of any use. Or, of course, become a classical scholar, which is is possible. I mean, I think I think the point about you were saying about them having a viewpoint is, you know, I don't think all footballers should be expected to have a viewpoint. I don't think that the questionnaire should change to, you know, um, is, you know, is capitalism now fundamentally flawed, you know, and uh, from from who would you most like to have a meal with? But equally, I do think it's good that they use their profile if they feel they have something important to say to say to say those things. Yeah. Okay, so your your third fascination of football is is much lower scale. It, it, this is this is very localized, and I'm fascinated by this one. Tell me about it. Okay, well this 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 comes from, I think my first ever away game would have been in the early seventies away at Arsenal, and um, just down from Houston, there's a hotel called the called the, the the Russell Hotel in Russell Square. It isn't called that anymore. Isn't there anymore? As they say, when you reach a certain age, as was, as they say in Stoke, the Russell Hotel, as was. Anyway, uh, we were wandering down, and we saw some of the Stoke players crossing the road, and we thought, "That's amazing." I said, what, "What are they doing?" And uh, one of the more confident amongst us shouted out, "What's going on?" And I think it was Dennis Smith shouted back. Late fitness test. Okay, right. The late fitness test has fascinated me ever since. The late <laughs> fitness test, as far as I could tell, because obviously we stayed and looked, um, uh, involved him walking once round Russell Square, <laughs> and that was that was the way uh, the, the the way that they decided if he was fit. It fascinated me for for lots of reasons. First of all, how late? How late? 
can the late fitness test be? Obviously, you have to put in the teams, but up until then, okay? And also there's a sense in which they've got a lot of medical stuff at a football club, and yet the manager somehow thinks that something might happen between the last thing that the doctor or the physio has told him. You know, it's a bit like getting out a bro broken electrical device and thinking it might work this time. You know <laughs> what I mean? You've got those things in your house. And also, you, you wonder if the manager's thinking, well, you know, he's a good lad, and maybe between 10 o'clock Saturday morning and 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon when I've got to put the team in, there'll be a medical breakthrough. You know, there'll be some sort of medical breakthrough that will allow his broken leg to be fixed. Very briefly, the other thing is, as one of life's substitutes, I always felt terrible for the player who would have come in for the player, given the late fitness mm. test, especially when managers say things like, we're going to give him every chance. I'd rather have a half fit Bishton than no Bishton at all. And you think, for me, as one of life's eternal substitutes, you're thinking, that's not very nice at all. That's, <laughs> that's rather heartbreaking. That's divisive. That could hurt a sensitive person, okay? So that's one of the other things. The other things were, I think in the early 70s, mostly a late fitness test meant, were you still pissed? <laughs> were you still pissed from the night before? But finally, I think, I, I don't know why the clubs don't use this, and this is my final thing on it, okay? There is a long established situation for deciding whether somebody is fit to play football. Clubs don't use it. I don't know why. It's worked for hundreds of years. You ask the player's mum, okay? <laughs> the player's mum can decide. If you're at home, the player's mum can send a note saying, look, he's really not very well at all. <laughs> he's really not very well at all. And if you're away, the player's mum can come in. The manager playing the role of the father will be saying, well, can he play? Can he play? The player's mum will say, well, let's see how he gets on with his breakfast, you know, that sort of thing. And then maybe at the 11th hour, she's going to go in. She's going to say, look, I'm really sorry. But frankly, if he's not fit enough to tidy his room, he's not fit enough to play football. And that, to me, nobody could argue with that, could they? Nobody could argue because it's established. Interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I, I love how we, every analogy seems to go back to the school days, which is fine. <laughs> I think we can all we can all sympathise that. We can all get our heads around that. But Charlie, my first point on this is um, maybe it's tied to this kind of cover story aspect from the pissed footballers of the 1970s. But do you think late fitness tests are just generally rarer now? I feel like you hear about them less. Yeah, that, 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 I, I think there is something in that. I mean, there's now the sort of training pics and fans sort of scouring, you know, zooming out and in on pictures to see, oh, I think I did see that player spotted. So I don't know, maybe it's harder to... Because was there maybe a bit of ob obfuscation with, with late fitness tests? I don't know. It feels like it might Kidology. Uh, yeah, a little bit. But you do, you do hear about them less. I mean, what does it involve is a piece that if it hasn't been written, I'm sure will be soon. Nick, this kind of in also inspires a very kind of proper football man level of logic. And I'd be interested to know on which side of the fence you sit on this particular point, where pundits always say, well, if he's fit enough for the bench, he's fit enough to start. Do you agree with this? Do you agree with that? That's clearly nonsense. <laughs> That's clearly nonsense because what it doesn't take into account is the psychological effect of having a player either prepared to come on or coming on and taking the interest and the uh, and the attention of other players. So, no, I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. I wonder if there's a kind of formal process at the end 
of a late fitness test, by which, Charlie, they come up with the time-honoured tradition of rating a footballer's preparedness to play a game out of 100 as a kind of little split ratio. But I, I want to nail this once and for all. What are the acceptable ratios that are allowed to be expressed? 50-50 is clearly the ultimate one because it's like it's touch and go. 60-40? I like 60-40. 70-30, I would hear. I don't think I would accept any other percentage ratios split than those. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, anything other than 50-50 sounds weird. I mean, you can obviously say he's about 50-50 or, you know, yeah, he's, you know, somewhere somewhere at 50-50. But I don't, it'd be, I think anything else is a bit jarring. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Right then, welcome back to Meza Harland Dicks with our star guest this week, Nick Hancock, he's talked about his fascination to football. Now, let's get into the fun part of this. Nick, tell me about your first irritation of football, please. Thanks very much for um, for saying let's get into the fun part of this. Mm. Half went through. Uh, I enjoyed the first half, to tell you the no, honest No, the traditionally truth. fun part. You know what I mean. Of course you know what I mean. Okay. Well, um, crime and punishment, which is, of course, very relevant just at the moment. I've got all this, this cesspit of of uh, uh, desire for Manchester City to be relegated to uh, the Vanarama um, um, <laughs> and, and all of that stuff. Crime and punishment in football is is a murky world, uh, which which I've always found fascinating because most things are dealt with in-house, uh, which I've always taken to believe to mean not dealt with at all. Um, although sometimes, uh, you know, as we know, we've seen, I don't know whether you saw the Pear Metasaka LinkedIn profile, where Pear put that one of his great uh, lessons that he'd learned, one of his great strengths was that he'd been in charge of player fines at Arsenal and, and, and that he'd been a hard taskmaster and had once fined Nacho Monreal £10,000 for wearing a poncho on match day. Which I think is a wonderful little insight into what goes on in these sort of disciplinary hearings that they have at football clubs. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with a poncho, Nick, do you think? Well, I'm presuming that this was already written down, you know, as part of the list of, you know, unacceptable items of, of clothing to wear on a match day. Who knows what else was that? We, we're not told. Maybe maybe it was perfectly acceptable for, for, for say, Nacho Monreal and and maybe, I don't know, uh, Granite Zacker or somebody to turn up as a pantomime horse. Fine. You know, it's on the list. We're not, there's no trouble here. Now, the language of football and discipline, Charlie, has kind of been blown apart this week by an, an unprecedented series of events. This is Manchester City's charges by the Premier League for financial irregularities, shall we say, across many years. It's opened up a whole new can of worms, which is the barrister lark. And the planet 
that they seem to live on when it comes to the superlatives that are thrown at them. I mean, the the guy that's been recruited by Man City, and this is the this is the tweet that went out from the Lawyer magazine, and they couldn't help themselves, which is Man City swoop for top barrister. I mean, they're absolutely loving it in League. I love this, this so much. I was tweeting about this this morning because I saw City Extra, which must be a sort of City aggregator. Tisha account did a thing, a tweet saying Lord Panic KC colon with a tick by each of these beat the government over Brexit times two successfully appealed against UEFA's Man City ban at Cass and then the third so they've already taken on the government and won and UEFA and won and then Panic's crowning glory helped fend off a lawsuit from Joe Royal following his Man City <laughs> sacking what a CV that is the big three the UK government UEFA and Joe Royal. They also became very obsessed with the payment that these uh, the, the, these people. It's a Casey, of course. He'll be earning these days, more. Than um, uh, yes, and and putting him in in a list of Manchester City players and how well paid he would be, <laughs> and he probably Who would else be in the top sort of Panic twenty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I went on to uh, the Blackstone Chambers website, uh, the legal firm that that he practices for god knows how it works the reel of testimonials for this guy and his legal skills are absolutely astonishing it takes kind of football speak ramps it up by about 150 percent let me just talk you through some of these the leading light in the civil liberties and human rights world for over 20 years they said he makes advocacy an art presenting in a simple way but delivering with such gravitas his level of skill and ability is astonishing there has been no greater advocate in public law over the last 40 years. And finally, his strengths are immeasurable. His skill in so many areas is nothing short of masterful. It's like we're talking about like a silky number 10, quite literally yeah, yeah. a silky yeah. number 10. And, and and also the subtext to all of that is, and if you don't agree, sue me. Because <laughs> I also like the idea that, that he may have once long ago uh, twice been Barclays Young Legal Eagle of the Month. Prodigiously uh, <laughs> 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 talented. I don't I know did. if you've made that up. I did. I just made it up. Yes, I'm that is fantastic. So. But Charlie, these are in-demand people in the same way that, you know, top level strikers might be. I guess they have to be kind of bigged up in this kind of way. Yeah, I just love like where will this crossover end? Like, I love the idea of City fans refreshing flight radar, tracking Lord Panic Casey's movements, or you know how when new signings, their sort of Instagram pictures are analysed and they're like, oh, but that's a UK plug in the bottom left-hand corner. Sort of looking at Lord Panic and being like, he's near the, you can see the high court in the background of that picture. So just so much opportunity for crossover. Yeah, there's going to be there'll be people in pubs going, yeah, well, he's good. Yeah, he's good. Criminal law. Bloody magnificent. But in a case like this, you don't want somebody, you want <laughs> like for like, mate. You want someone who's strong on torts, not civil, tort, mate. The idea that people would be discussing his legal credentials in the pub is so alluring to me. I, I, I can't It can't be that it. far off. I mean, the way fandoms go, I really, you know, there will be furious debates about his his credentials amongst and, the and, fans. And inevitable Panini sticker book <laughs> of the legal profession. <laughs> or FPL, the sort of FPL equivalent, you know, double game week for Lord Panic. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, like, if, if there was any doubt to which kind of football tribalism would infiltrate this unprecedented scenario. It was the announcement that Murray Rosen KC is going to head up the Premier League's independent commission for this. And it emerges that he's an Arsenal season ticket holder, which is like suddenly sends kind of like shockwaves through the potential paranoia of football fans' psychologies. 
Well, it, well, and also, of course, the, the idea that uh, anyone involved in in due legal process would be unable to uh, to stop his uh, his club loyalties. See, what can he do? You know, he's apparently they've told. This is the word on the street. He's apparently he's one of their top boys. He, he really, he's one of their top top right. boys. You know, that's why he's leading them up, mate. Top boy is. It's just like referees, Charlie. I was going to say, it's caring it's, about where referees live, it, isn't it? It's referee appointments, sort of turbocharged. But I, did, I love this. Too. I just want to give a shout out to Elliot Newstead, who tweeted me earlier in response to a bit of fun over this, saying, imagining the tweet saying, stop it, panic. The Premier League has a family. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a, a brilliant sort of, yeah, uh, yeah that there's gonna, there will be that. Honestly, honestly. Lord I can't Panic wait. doing Lord Panic things. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Your second irritation of football, please. Okay. I don't know whether you, you, you've noticed this. I mean, maybe it's just my particular earworm. But there seems to be an advert that appears on, on um, uh, during sports coverage and football coverage specifically, which is an advert for a company called fanatics.co.uk. Yeah. If you like sport, we like sport too. If you are a fan of your team, we're a fan of your team. Right. Okay. This, 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 this is completely baffling to me. They sell merchandise. I have a problem with merchandise. So this isn't even like NFTs and stuff. This is just like football merchandise that you can touch with your hands. Yeah. But, and it's generic. Okay. So. Let's let us travel, if we may, once more back to school. If you turned up at school with a bag, okay, with your stuff in, and it said on it "sport," okay, that meant you knew nothing about. Who would have a bag that just said, you know, you can't? It makes no sense. I don't like it. It's part of the half and half scarf, and you must have mentioned this. I've no doubt when England played Wales, you know that tin eared thing that ITV News did when they had a news reporter in a half Welsh, half England football shirt. And you think, yeah, but that doesn't tell me that you'll support both. That tells me you don't know fucking anything about sport. <laughs> That's and that I'm perhaps being strong on this, but I believe it very, very deeply, very, very deeply. Obviously, you're not the first person to express their disgust at the creeping art form of half and half scarves, etc. Charlie, I am interested in um, the kind of the assumptions that are made about merchandise and, and just how important they are to people. And it reared its ugly head this week in a, in a sort of fleeting little culture war moment where someone tweeted, football tops over a hoodie need to be a criminal offence in 2023. How many layers of clothing do you think it's acceptable to wear a football shirt over in order to demonstrate that you, you support a certain team? It depends, though. I mean, is that if you're going to a game and you, you're doing it for pure, purely temperature reasons? Yeah, I think there's sort of some justification to that. No, hoodie is. I'd say hoodie is just about acceptable. I don't. I don't think I particularly agree with that point of view. But would you wear? Could you? Could you countenance the idea of saying like wearing like an XXL shirt over the top of like a puffer jacket? Like, no, I mean, is that taking your display of merchandise too far? Yeah, I think that would be. I think it would just be too uncomfortable. That would look apart odd. from anything else. Yeah. But yes, that would look ludicrous. Nick, I realise this is a very strange tangent to go down, but I did ask our listeners about the most outer layer clothing they have worn a football shirt over. 
And I only got one disappointing answer, but I want to read it out anyway. The Gold Tips said, I have worn a polo neck jumper on many pitches, including Hackney Marshes, five-a-side games in Edinburgh, and sandy surfaces all across Belfast. I'll never change. I swear, I once wore a polo neck sweatshirt under my football shirt when I was like 11, and never happened since. And I've never seen anybody else do it. What happens to the polo neck under football shirt look? Well, it was certainly it was a brief, a brief fad. And I think it was, you know, I think it's one of those things that, you know, and they're few and far between where popular opinion just wouldn't have it. You know what I mean? In the end, you know, the people spoke and it went. Personally, I would never wear a football shirt anywhere apart from playing football. I find them, uh, you know, abhorrent. I think it's a ridiculous thing to do. What what do you I don't know by this? Yeah, no, never, never, never would I would I would I wear a, a football shirt um, uh, apart from playing football. It, 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 it seems madness to me. You don't go to the theatre to watch Shakespeare in doublet and hose, do you? You know, <laughs> this is you amazing. Don't what an amazing white. case to make. No, 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 no. I'm not having it. I'm not having it. No, no, no. It's ridiculous. It's what it's saying is, I'm nearly playing. I'm, I'm nearly playing. Look, I've got the oh, same shirt. This is harsh. I'm just in a different part of the ground. This is particularly harsh, seeing as barely an hour ago I was watching a 1999 documentary of you uh, walking through a market in Tehran wearing an Iran shirt. (laughs) Ah, yeah. But having bought it uh, at the shirt makers as part of the programme, to be fair. And I wasn't at a game. I was at a market in Tehran. You know, yes, I was younger and more svelte. (laughs) Not much more, but more svelte. (laughs) Okay, right. Time for your third and final irritation of football, please. Well, this is this, uh, you know, this is again, it's fish in a barrel, but but it it, it has a more general application. Uh, you know, I'm going to start by saying the two words, England band. You know, that's fine. OK, yeah. the England band. Clearly, I don't really need to say any more. I don't know anybody who likes the England band. The England band are are, are an awful carbuncle on the face of international football. The point about the England band is it's enforcing a certain sort of support on everybody else around. In the England band's case, it's because they're so loud, nobody else could do anything else. So, you know, they, you know, we basically had 30 years of failure, the soundtrack to 30 years of failure, having to sing along to the great bloody escape. Fine. Football clubs will put cards of different colours on people's seats at the end of the, and say, oh, hold up. No, no, I don't want to go to a football game to play Simon Says. I want to go to express <laughs> my view. I am, you know, quite old. I can decide. And the other thing is, there are brilliant songs. There are fantastic things shouted at football matches. They are wonderful. But the point is, they happen organically. They can't be foisted upon you by some group of a think tank somewhere or some <laughs> group of people who've once been to a pub so they know what it's like to be a fucking football supporter. All right? You get great songs, wonderful songs. I mean, I, you know, other clubs, not just my club. Uh, I, I remember a friend telling me about going to see Sheffield United play Manchester City and Sheffield United fans are singing We Hate Wednesday and We Hate Wednesday and the Man City fans sang We Hate Saturday and We Hate Saturday. Good. Man City, that was the old Man City. That was, there would be nobody in a club that would say, I tell you what, it'd be a good song if we slagged off our own team. That won't happen. Okay. This is organic 
stuff. Got it. My first point on this then, Charlie, is um, I, I realise that manufactured atmosphere is, is, is quite a widespread kind of bugbear at the moment. But And it has been for well, probably a good 10 years or so. But it, at its core, it's quite well-intentioned, isn't it? Is it that cynical an exercise? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Nick. I think that the sort of improvisation of chance is one of the great things about football. I suppose you would say, if you're being generous, it tends to happen at places where maybe the atmosphere is lacking and it's a sort of, I don't know, last-ditch attempt to inject something. I can't imagine it happening at a ground where there's already a good atmosphere. In preparing for this podcast, Nick, you mentioned the um, the kind of concertina shaped kind of clappers, the cardboard clappers that mm. some fans dish out. Now, in defence of those of sorts, aren't they kind of just like the spiritual successor to the to the ancient kind of football rattle, which to me, looking back, seems like the most impractical thing to bring to a football ground of all time. So, I mean, if you're going to get nostalgic about that, maybe, then surely you've got to embrace the concertina clapper. Yeah, but the concertina clapper, as provided by the club, is a completely different uh, animal altogether. The homemade um, rattle, uh, you know... A ludicrous uh, port- device. A ludicrous device. Did you ever have yeah. one? No, I never had a rattle. I'm, I'm probably... I've been at games where, that, where there were rattles. I'm old, <laughs> enough, uh, I'm old enough to remember that, certainly. Nick, dare I ask, where do you stand on goal music? <laughs> I don't even know if we do. I don't... I would, I've never noticed it. I don't if know if they do it. I don't, it doesn't impinge. I'm in the moment if a goal scored. They may do it at Stoke. They may not. I have no idea. I don't know. Clearly, I don't approve. But <laughs> I would have hoped so. But um, Charlie, when it comes to goal music, are we beyond caring slash help about this now? It's, it's it, it happens. There's nothing we can do about it. Maybe. I mean, it does feel it, it was something feel people too bob as it used to. Yeah, and and people did feel really strongly about it for a while, didn't they? I think there's either now weary resignation or people have successfully driven it out of their clubs. And how does goal music work with VAR? Do they put the countdown clock on while they're waiting before playing the goal music? Because it seems self-defeating if you're going to have a VAR um, review after playing the goal music, because then the goal music is no longer the goal music, because it might not be a goal. They should give the goal music duties to the VAR like a DJ. <laughs> Streamline the process. David Coote pressing play. <laughs> David Coote on the decks. <laughs> David Coote, B2B, Jared Gillett. <laughs> that would be great. We asked our listeners for other kind of ludicrous ways that clubs have tried to boost their matchday atmosphere and some mundane ways as well. Uh, Malcolm Harlan says, Reading once experimented with giving out rumble sticks. These are inflatable sticks that bang together to make noise to boost atmosphere. Uh, tried it once and never seen again. It's quite a Reading thing to do, I I'm, I'm feel safe to say. Charlie, Nick was talking about how this sort of thing should be organic and it shouldn't be too manufactured and it should be there should be an element of a kind of choice about this. Maybe this sits somewhere in between. This is from the Puro Puri podcast. It says, um, children playing six aside on the pitch at half-time. It backfired spectacularly at Upton Park during an especially bad West Ham season when one of the kids missed a penalty and the away fans started singing, that's why you're going down. That's This is where it should be. This is exactly where it should be. That's the sweet spot of all of this. Arranged that's am- hilarity. That's amazing, yeah. Absolutely love that. Would you agree, Nick, then, that sort of half-time on-pitch entertainment is the acceptable face of arranged forced hilarity, then? <laughs> No, it was always naff. I mean, the whole point about it being there is that people disappear at half time. I think there was um, 
I mean, I'm I'm old enough to have had the police dog handling team come on at half time and, and that sort of thing. And <laughs> yeah, local bands. authorities doing their thing on the pitch. That's yeah, 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 exactly. So um again, it's a bit like this goal music. I, I'm I'm aware of its existence. I've never experienced it myself. Right then, Nick, I think we've given producer Mike just enough audio to deal with on his debut on the Clichés pod. Uh, thanks for joining us on Mesut Harland Dix. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Interesting to note, you have your own football podcast. It's the famous Sloping Pitch. It isn't just me. It's uh, myself and, 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 and Chris England. And uh, we have great fun doing it. So, you know, I don't know whether people enjoy listening to it, but they're welcome to and, uh, and, 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 and we encourage them. It's like, Charlie, they're like the 90s football videos for the 2020s, aren't they? (laughs) Exactly that. Exactly that. Nick, thanks very much again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Cheers to you, Charlie. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for everyone for listening and we'll be back on Tuesday. The Athletic.